Welcome to the Making Sense of MarTech podcast, an irregular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, technology, and advertising. My name is Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter, a weekly email that covers the important shifts, ideas, research, and news in marketing technology. People who read it work in some of the largest tech, media, advertising, and consulting companies. Now, today I'm joined by Dr. Augustine Fu. He's a marketer of 25 years, a world-class expert in advertising fraud. He's taught marketing at NYU and Rutgers University, working with companies like American Express, Omnicom, Intel, and McKinsey & Company. Augustine Fu was a regular contributor to Forbes, where I came across a number of articles recently talking about the topic of the four Ps, academic theory, and what it actually means for marketers who are dealing in a digital marketplace. So ladies and gentlemen, I give you Augustine Fu. Thanks, Augustine, Ryan. how are you? Very good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. I'd love for you to give me a brief introduction to yourself, uh, what you do, and what led you to writing a bunch of different articles surrounding the four Ps and what it is. Okay, great. Well, I'm a digital marketer of 25 years, all of that here in New York City. Right after I left McKinsey and Company, I kind of started my first consulting firm. And at the time in the mid-90s, you can imagine uh, we still had to convince people they needed websites. So I've been in the trenches doing digital marketing since then. And because I'm a scientist, I also like data, like analytics, and I focus on looking at the analytics. And over the years, you know, much has changed with digital marketing and inter the internet. So when we see, you know, some of the analytics recently, we see a lot of activity that's really not related to humans going to websites or clicking on ads. Mm -hmm. The area that I study right now is what we call ad fraud or bot activity, because the bots are generating traffic, they're generating ad impressions, and they're clicking on stuff. So when all of those things get recorded in analytics, then very often the marketers, if they don't know this is happening, they might end up uh, optimizing for the wrong things and send more money to the bad guys instead of actually do digital marketing. So that's the kind of area that I focus on currently. So I wanted to start this conversation off. There has been a lot of noise over the past two weeks around the four Ps. And the concept is uh, product, price, promotion, and place. Now, it's come out of academia. It's been around for more than 60 years. And there's been a lot of thinking and uh, evolution around that topic of the four Ps, particularly on how, I guess, the internet's disrupted how academic theory in marketing actually gets executed on the ground, people working in marketing teams, people working in digital teams. So I'd love for you to explain your viewpoint on the four Ps. You mentioned in a number of articles on Forbes that it kind of belongs to the 20th century. It doesn't really belong in... Uh, the 21st century, where the internet and particularly digital uh, transformation has changed a lot of thinking around how brand marketing is done, how product promotion is, is done, and how strategy is done in marketing teams. So I'd love for you to expand on some of your thoughts and how you arrived at the conclusions surrounding the four Ps. All right. So the four Ps is a well-known framework. I've also used it in client brainstorming sessions and use it in class as stimuli to talk about uh, product, price, place, and promotion. But the reason I wrote that article on the four Ps is really to kind of encourage fresh thinking, right? So that, you know, we really have seen how digital 
and consumers have changed in the last 25 years. And in the greater scheme of things, 25 years is a very short amount of time. But if you can imagine yeah. modern consumers, I, I, I like to use this example in class, right? Imagine a consumer is standing in a retail store and then the salesperson is trying to get them to buy this big TV. They'll say, oh, it's the best price. It's the best TV you can buy. The consumer now, because of smartphones, because of the internet, and because there's other content online, they can immediately look up something on their phone while they're standing in the store. So when they yeah. look up that specific TV, they can say, oh, well, I can get the, a cheaper price somewhere online, or the reviews aren't that good, right? So they're basically have access to information. So I call it the constant and instant access to information such that the consumer is now in charge, right? The power has shifted to the consumer and any advertiser, including the poor salesperson at the retail store, who's trying to convince them you know, to buy this TV, they have a much harder job because the consumer has this information available to them. So tying it back to the four Ps, you know, I kind of differentiate theory that we like to teach in a classroom versus kind of the practical aspects of day-to-day -day marketing. And in a lot of the clients that I've served over the years, and these tend to be the larger corporations, you can kind of think of marketing as a department, right? So imagine a pharmaceutical company, marketing is a department, R&D is a different department, right? And sales is a different department. So if we kind of use that as the context for four Ps, the marketer usually in a big corporation has their own swim lane, which is marketing and communications, what we might call advertising, right? Getting the word out about the product, but they can't change the product much, if anything, yep. right? Uh, you know, like it's a pharmaceutical drug. This is the drug that was approved by the government regulators. They can't change that, right? That's the, mar that's the product they have to market. The other thing is the place, right? So these are prescription drugs. They can only be prescribed in pharmacies, right? They can't change the place where they're sold. And then even the price is usually not dictated by the marketer. So in those cases, the marketer has to focus on doing marketing, which in this case, more narrowly says it's more the promotion P of the four Ps, right? So they're thinking about how do we talk about it? What do we say? And, and how do we convince um, customers to buy our product as opposed to someone else's? So in that case, you know, given the, that the power has shifted to the consumer and given the limitations of what typical marketers can or cannot do in their day jobs, that's why I said, you know, 4Ps is great as a theoretical framework, and it definitely should be pulled out once in a while. For example, at company retreats where the C-suite sure. and the marketers, you know, if they have the luxury of kind of expanding their thinking, four Ps is a great framework for them to do that, right? Do brainstorming, expand their thinking. But when it comes to their day-to-day, -day, you know, there's, again, practicalities of what they can and cannot do. So that I'm trying to differentiate between the more academic view of four Ps and, you know, what marketers can do with it on, on a day-to-day -day basis in their jobs. And the thinking behind the four Ps is quite interesting. As you mentioned, it is a great tool to frame brand marketing, to frame how your product uh, should be positioned in a market, what price competitiveness looks like. But when it comes to actually uh, executing it on the ground, you commented on a Medium article that came out about a week and a half ago talking about things that the four Ps don't cover. 
things like uh, retention and lifetime value marketing, things like lead generation, things like winning customers back after they've had a bad experience. And the four Ps seem to be a high level concept, but what marketers think about day to day, even senior marketers and CMOs, they tend to think about what's going to solve our customer problems today. Uh, what are those things that are going to drive customer value today? And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, how the four Ps map to some of that value-based um, marketing that a lot of teams are thinking about at the moment. I, I think they really don't because like you said, four Ps tend to be more of a strategic framework, you know, and I've actually seen small business owners. So for example, the new DTC brands that you see in, in the US, especially the direct to consumer brands, they kind of came out of nowhere. They don't really sell anything in the physical world, right? Everything is done through their website. They've had great success using four Ps and similarly small and medium businesses, because usually those small business owners can use that framework to think through, you know, how do they innovate the product? How do they price it better? And even where do they sell it? But these days, you know, when you think about selling online, you don't have to worry about people not being able to physically access your product, right? You're not limited to just selling in a store and someone walking to it to get to it, right? These days, if you sell online and you offer free shipping, the product will be delivered to the customers. So like you said, 4Ps is more strategic, more theoretical. The, that particular medium post by the young marketer, it's different in, in a, a few ways. One is that it's more tactical, of course. But the other thing is she works at Intel and the nature of their marketing is long-term, big ticket items, more B2B, right? So Intel, of course, has computer chips, but their marketing, even though they have TV ads, is not primarily focused on the consumers because what they do is they sell large numbers of those computer chips to companies like Dell, uh, Lenovo, HP, and they build them into computers. So ultimately for Intel, it's more B2B marketing. That's their primary focus. And what she wrote is, you know, think about how do you deliver little bits of value to the potential customers that are going to buy multi-million dollars worth of computer chips from you. And you have to educate. So she called it dripping the value. So it's really mm. giving them little bits of information that help them better understand how your product is different and unique and things like that. So of course you have your brochures. Of course you can tell them all in one, one hour sales session or something. But basically when the potential customers come online and do their own research, the question is, do you have the right content there? That's going to answer the questions that they need to have answered in their own minds. Right. So a framework that I developed over the years is something called missing links. And you can kind of think of the customer journey as a long chain of links. And if any one of those links is broken, the entire chain is broken. And it really is to think about, you know, kind of from the customer's perspective, they will move themselves along their journey because now they're empowered with the information. So just like we said earlier, they have constant and instant access to the information. So they tend to do research on things, right? They're not just going to go out and buy the product because they saw a TV ad, right? They, they saw the TV ad, but they might do a little more research. And especially with big ticket items, multi-million dollar purchases, you can be sure they're going to spend much more time researching it. So when they do, the question is, does the marketer have the right bits of information, i.e. the missing links that can help or the information that's going to help solve these missing links? Because when you do, the customer can move themselves along their customer journey. 
and get to the purchase event sooner and more efficiently. So again, what I thought valuable in that young marketer's medium post was that she really talked about it from the customer's perspective. What can we do for the customer to help move them along the, the, their customer journey? As opposed to a lot of marketers are still thinking spray and pray. They're still thinking what message yep. do we tell, right? So that's very much rooted in the history, right? Which is we come from advertising. We want to tell people our product is the best thing since sliced bread. But because the dynamic has changed, because the customers are empowered, we can shout all we want and tell them how great our product is. They're not necessarily going to just believe us, right? So it's really about changing our perspective. So a couple of things were really triggered by that medium post, right? Move from strategic to tactical, a move from uh, more theoretical to day-to-day, you know, practical application. So I think it was great for this discourse that we had in public. And it's a great conversation to have. One example, just to bring uh, some of these topics to life a little bit, I bought a couch over the um, holiday break over Christmas. And I spent, Augustine, two weeks researching online. I looked at every single website. I was comparing different fabrics, price points, configurations, And then I got to a head where I went into a store. I've already done, let's say, five to 10 hours worth of research over two weeks. I walked into store and I already knew what I wanted. And that's the norm now, even for big retailers, even for brands that don't typically sell online. Customers do all of their research online. As you mentioned before, customers do a lot of work while they're in the store as well, purchasing a TV. They'll they'll jump onto comparison sites. They'll even jump onto e-commerce retailers to see if they can get a better deal. And so there's a really great concept that's been floating around the past six months and Google uh, did a bunch of work on this on their blog called Think With Google about the messy middle, about how customers have nonlinear journeys and it's not a spray and pray either. There's a number of different touch points a customer could interact with a social media post. They could advertise with some search engine marketing. They could also uh, engage with some emails as well, but then they could go and store and they research. And instead of it being a linear journey, or you know, customers would see a number of uh, TVC ads, for example. It's far more messy than that. Customers go through cycles of different research and, and then they go and try something and then they explore a little bit more and then they do a bit more research. And then they come to a head and then make that purchasing decision. And so how do you think, particularly technology companies have approached that sort of customer journey scenario? And what do you think it means uh, to take something like the four Ps, an academic, like you mentioned before, a theoretical framework, and actually bring some of the value of that into what companies are doing today? Well, there's, there's quite a few aspects of that that are kind of, you know, they're, they're entirely different aspects. So let me try to unpack this a little bit. I, here is where I'm going to actually say throw out the four Ps. It's not applicable. Okay. So like I said mm-hmm. in my uh, Forbes article, four Ps are dead. And, and it's really the reason I'm saying that now is because four Ps is really marketer outward thinking. It's not customer centric thinking. And let me illustrate why. So four P's tells the marketer, think through your product, think through your price, think through your promotion, which is how you talk about it, right? In your ads and stuff like that. And then think about where you want to sell it. As we said before, the place is where the customer needs to buy it, not where you want to sell it. The price is what the customer wants to pay and thinks they, you know, the, 
the trade-off, right? The price that they paid versus the value that they got, right? That price point is determined by the customer or the market, not what you, the marketer thinks it should be. The product itself, you know, again, it's going to be very clear if customers buy it or not, right? So on and so forth. So that's a very marketer outward way of thinking about it. And that is at odds with the modern world where the customer is now empowered. So just like your personal example, you did all this research and none of it had to do with the ads. Even if you came across some ads for a sofa, you're probably not going to just buy that sofa because you saw the ad or because the ad said that particular sofa was the best thing since sliced bread, right? You're going to go make that decision yourself based on your own research. So I concur with Google's blog post or the, you know, think with Google which says customer journeys are extremely messy. In fact, I have a slide published years and years ago called customer journey spaghetti, right? And <laughs> because every customer journey is so different, you know, it's very hard for a marketer to actually see all the journeys, right? So the marketers might see that person if they come to the website, right? And they have analytics on it and things like that. They might even see that person when they interact with a search ad that the marketer has out there. But usually I call those slices of the universe, right? Slices of a customer journey. They don't get to see the entire journey, right? Because the advertiser is not in every single place that customer goes when they have the journey. So because of that, and let me use one more example. The journeys might be very long or might be very short. And usually you can imagine if it's a small or low ticket item like soup or soda, most customers don't have to research that much, right? It's just, you know, a dollar, five dollars that they don't care that much. So they don't do a ton yep. of research. Bigger ticket items like maybe cars or computers that are complex and have many features, they tend to research that more. But in that case, those are generalities, right? So, you know, more complex, higher cost products tend to have longer journeys. However, you can also imagine, oh, well, you know, this person is in, is in a BMW family, meaning their family has bought BMWs for a very long time. These are cars, right? So in that case, you would say, oh, well, don't they have very long journeys? No. In this case, the, the son just bought BMW because their parents bought BMW. So in that case, you know, even a big ticket item could have a very short journey for that particular customer. Long that's a long way of saying that every customer has a different journey. So I think of that as a, the chain, right? With many different links in it. And if any one of those links is broken or missing, they can't complete the chain. They can't get to the purchase. So the way I think about how marketers need to change their thinking is instead of from the storytelling perspective, right? We, the marketer, tell the customer how great the product is and tell them all about the features and all that kind of stuff. Instead of storytelling, the marketer now needs to think in terms of solving missing links for the customer. So for example, when the customer comes online to search for something, do you have the content that might help them answer the question? If you don't, then go make the content, right? Or even if yep. you have the content, if they can't find it because it's not search engine optimized, right? It's not SEO'd properly, it doesn't do any good. So for the marketer, that's how I think about, you know, kind of changing your perspective to understanding the customer's missing links and how to support them making their own way along their journey, right? Some could be long, some could be short. And if you think about, those missing links, 
you don't actually have to know how long or short or how complex or how convoluted that journey is because you're helping to solve those missing links one at a time. And you can also imagine that different customers in the future might have the same question as previous customers, right? So if you create a piece of content and you put it on your social media site, you put it on your own website, or even, you know, the customer reviews in the, in Amazon, right? So when people ask a question, others can help them, or you can write as a manufacturer, you can help them answer those questions. All of those things accumulate value over time, right? And will continue to pay back more value to you as a marketer compared to an ad, right? So when you air the TV ad, it's over after it's aired. If you show a banner ad or video ad, it's gone after you air it. But if you create a piece of content, it, it might help solve missing links for future customers that have the same question. So in that case, you know, like I said, there's many different aspects of you know, marketing that you asked that one question. But again, it's rooted in an understanding that the world has changed around us. Customers are in charge. Marketers need to change their perspective from marketer outward and determining what to say to really understanding what the customers need and better serving them or more efficiently serving them so that you can get them to the purchase as efficiently as possible. I really like your perspective on, as you say, these, these links within the customer journey where you can solve on the majority of those. And I think it's great to establish that every customer has different interactions and they have their own messy middle. But then there's broad things that you can solve on within those experiences. What I like to call uh, moments of truth. Uh, when a customer is about to check out, for example, that's a moment of truth. Is that experience streamlined? Is it efficient? Have they got the information that's critical to make that transaction? Other things like browsing a homepage or browsing a whole bunch of emails or receiving a newsletter. Those are all moments of truth that marketers should be thinking about of adding value, solving those problems for customers, making those experiences better, as opposed to a, a broad four P's type framework, spray and pray advertising. Obviously, I think every marketing team has both. I think it's healthy to have both focusing too low on the sort of funnel or the acquisition journeys or retention journeys sort of bring a detriment to some of the cultural and broader based media type marketing, which is important as well. But I want to focus now a little bit on how you came to this conversation, which I found quite interesting. So you mentioned earlier that you read a really great piece on Medium by a young marketer challenging the four Ps and adding a lot of really great context around what it actually means for a marketer on the ground. But I'd like your thoughts on how you came to defend that young person when she was criticized by some fairly senior people in academia for her thoughts. Yeah, so she wrote a, a Medium post and then uh, some academic uh, you know, professors attacked her and primarily, you know, if, if the attack were more of a, you know, she got it wrong or, you know, and then offered some constructive criticism, that would have probably been okay. But even, even then attacking a young marketer is not a, not a good thing. Ultimately, it was the, his argument was around, oh, well, we got to defend the four Ps because it's been done for 60 years. And essentially the way he wrote it came across as, oh, well, we, you know, we shouldn't have all these new ideas, new thinking. We really need to stick to the frameworks. And so it was, it was lacking on a number of levels, right? <laughs> lacking empathy, lacking an understanding that the young marketer is just starting out and she's putting ideas forth to kind of pressure test them, right? It, it's one thing to write it down. It may not be 100% accurate, but, you know, that is her perspective. 
and for a very senior uh, professor to be denigrating a student in public is not cool. And because he did that, you know, in, in a lot of the comments that followed, we saw a lot of other people piling on and again, denigrating that person, that young marketer, and then almost cheering on the professor. So that's what I reacted to, right? It's almost like in a classroom, the teacher up front is holding up the student's writing and literally berating her in front of the class and then the rest of the class cheering him on and then continuing to abuse her. So that's not cool. That's not academic. That's not professional. It just should not be done. And so, you know, that's why I reacted to it so strongly. The way I approach young marketers, obviously, you know, I've, I've taught at NYU and Rutgers. I always consider what I do as presenting stimuli, right? I have my perspective. I have some frameworks that I use, but just like we said earlier in this podcast, you know, it's really to present stimuli for discussion and young marketers and other marketers for that matter, right? Because when I taught at NYU and Rutgers, these were marketing executives who had full-time marketing jobs, but they were trying to learn more about digital side of marketing. So I presented them with stimuli and they presented back to me their perspectives based on their real world experience, right? So depending on the industry that they're in, right? We, we mentioned pharmaceutical earlier. That's entirely different than CPG that's, or consumer packaged goods. And it's entirely different than a company like Intel, where it's B2B, it's very, very long cycle marketing and things like that. So those are all scenarios that have to be taken into account. And while the old frameworks are very good for brainstorming purposes and, you know, companies use them at offsites for their, you know, C-level executives, every marketer, the point is every marketer should think for themselves and they can use 4Ps framework to help stimulate their thinking. They can use other frameworks like unified marketing framework, uh, missing links framework and things like that to get to certain tactics that then they can actually execute on. And the point is we should be encouraging the thinking not discouraging new thinking and saying, oh, you have to stick with the old frameworks. So I think that's how this whole conversation came about. But it really helped me kind of revisit, okay, well, should I change my thinking on the four Ps? Well, I didn't change my thinking on the four Ps. I wrote about it in 2016. And, and even back then, you know, the, the power has shifted to the consumers. So my perspective on that is, hasn't changed. It's that four Ps are a nice academic framework. I think your, your highlight there, imagine you're in a classroom and the professor holds up your work and ridicules it in front of everybody. I think that's a really great illustration and how to frame public discourse. And to your point, uh, young marketers, they're decentralizing knowledge in a lot of ways. There's more people on Substack now, publishing on Medium, doing vlogs on YouTube, starting podcasts. And there's this been what I call it like a Cambrian explosion of creativity. And this real decentralization of knowledge work in our space, marketing, technology, advertising. And it's a really great time to start talking about public discourse and how to challenge each other. Because before uh, we jumped onto this call, you had a really great point, Augustine, about sometimes you can have a, a heated discussion with somebody in public. But then a little bit later after that, it actually turns into quite a productive relationship. So my question to you is about the state of public discourse. What do you think of it right now? What do you think is wrong about it and how we should fix it? Yeah, I think if you look at uh, social media, specifically Twitter and Facebook, 
the posts that tend to get the most likes or hate, if you will, are the ones that are more <laughs> controversial. And then, you know, there's kind of like a built-in mechanism for Facebook or any site that relies on traffic to make more money. You might have seen those studies that say bad news travels faster, right? And bad news generates a lot more yes. page views than good news, right? So a similar phenomenon is happening in, in discourse, right? If you, if you think about social media. So when I, when I advise young marketers or people just starting out, when they get into social media, they need to have a thick skin. They need to be able to take abuse and they need to expect that they will be abused by the mob, the public, right? But that should not discourage them from putting their ideas out there. And the reason I write, and really the reason for that particular Forbes article on the four Ps, but even the title was deliberately controversial so that we could stimulate the discourse. So when young marketers or anyone for that matter puts a piece of writing, a blog post, a medium post, a LinkedIn article out into the public, you know, they will have some good discourse around it. They will also get some abuse and hate mail for it. Uh, they need to expect that that's going to happen and they need to, you know, be the diplomat, right? Be the more mature person and say, let's have a dialogue. I can tell you some of my best relationships have come out of heated arguments initially, right? So they don't know who I am. I don't know who they are. And initially they think I'm a crazy person for writing this. But over time, <laughs> if, if we're able to, you know, have a dialogue, you know, and really start to understand the other person's perspective. I mean, in fact, some of them, you know, when we were talking about this young marketers piece, when I said, oh, well, she was writing from a B2B perspective. And then they said, oh. Well, I was commenting on a B2C perspective and, it, and her stuff didn't make sense at all. Once he realized that, I said, oh, now I get it. And then he went back and reread it. And then we had a great dialogue after that, right? So, so when you're able to stay away from the personal attacks and stay on, on the topics themselves, you know, public discourse can be awesome. But right now you just have to be aware and, you know, be cautious that there will be people who attack you, you know, sometimes for no reason, just because they want to, or it's fun for them. So anything you put out in public, you know, and you have to have the skills and the experience of doing that. I've been doing this for a very long time, but I, right. I tell younger marketers, you know, or even executives who literally have not been on social media before, right? Because they worked at companies they were not allowed to. When you go online, when you put anything out there, uh, there are going to be good dialogues and bad dialogue around it. Right. Just be prepared for both. But if you're the if you're, you know, putting it out there with perspective that you're willing to learn and other people might have other experiences that they can share with you, then that's a great way of learning. And I would encourage more marketers to do that. Right. Uh, it takes a little bit of courage, but put something out there to stimulate the dialogue because that's how you're going to learn. And I think that's going to be way, way better than anything you, you can learn in an academic setting. And so if I look back, you know, there are professors who have been in academia for 20 years, for 30 years, and they have not had any practical real world experience. That is one perspective, and that's totally fine. It's not good, bad, or, you know, otherwise. It is simply their perspective is from academia their perspective is theoretical. I would like to have more people, more marketers who have day-to-day -day practical hands-on experience to chime in and be part of that dialogue because we need their voice, right? We need to hear from their experience because to me, 
the experience is going to, what's going to help them address the different scenarios, right? We touched upon many different kinds of scenarios, right? But if you've seen those scenarios before, your experience will actually be, turn into very practical action items and advice for other people that might not have seen those real world experiences before. So to me, there's always this tension and balance between theoretical, i.e. academic, versus practical, i.e. in you know, people who are, who are doing this every day. And of course, we got to go back and forth because we can learn from both. But right now, we don't have enough of the voice of the practical marketers. You know, they need to have the courage to put some of their perspectives out in Medium posts, in LinkedIn posts, so that more people can have a dialogue because the world has definitely changed around us. Yeah, it's a great message for a lot of younger marketers, but also senior marketers as well. I'm surprised by the amount of senior people, even executives that feel very, very uncomfortable about publishing their thoughts in a public forum like social media or even newsletters, things like that, because of the fear of being cancelled or facing sharp criticism. There's a real sense of ridicule that comes with putting your viewpoints out on out in the public and then having people disagree with them. And my response is, well, let the market validate your thinking. Oftentimes, we hold ourselves back quite a bit when it comes to putting our thoughts online, purely because we don't think they're good enough. But who, who are we to say that we're not good enough to put those viewpoints out there? Let the market tell you. And from my experience, and I'm sure you share this as well, Augustine, uh, a lot of that feedback is positive and negative. I get great reviews and I get great feedback and I also get criticism as well. And it's all part of the swing of things. I, I always say to myself that that people on Twitter always hate you. <laughs> Just go in with that attitude because it's it's really, really important to get your viewpoints out there. It helps others and, and leads to some really great learning and also builds community as well. So thank you for that perspective. Now, I just want to finish up uh, with one question about uh, your work expo exposing advertising fraud. Now, you must get some really heated feedback in your inbox. I'm sure you get a little bit of hate mail, <laughs> maybe just a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the state of advertising, programmatic advertising at the moment, what you're seeing in the space, and where do you think things are going, particularly with big tech and regulation? So in terms of programmatic advertising, what I'm still seeing is a lot of fraud out there. And what I mean by that is uh, bot activity that's generating fake traffic, fake ad impressions, and fake clicks. So the reason I think we're still seeing so much of that is because a lot of the marketers and advertisers buying this actually love it. They're kind of addicted to it because of the large volumes of ads that they can buy and the low prices that they can get. Right. So without the fraudulent volumes, you know, imagine if you're buying a very small quantity of ads on a legitimate publisher, the CPMs are going to be higher and things like that. So ad fraud has kind of created this virtuous cycle for itself. Right. It's not a virtuous cycle by any, any stretch, but it, it's basically a perpetuating cycle where the marketers need the fraud to continue so that they can keep buying larger and larger quantities at lower and lower prices. And it's because a lot of these fake sites don't have any cost of content. They might have just plagiarized everything or do pirated yep. music and movies and that kind of stuff. So in those cases, I'm still seeing a lot of fraud continue. But where I see it heading is due to privacy regulations that are just starting to be enforced right now. And due to some moves by companies like Apple, where they're doing away with third-party cookies and also Google doing away with third-party cookies in Chrome sometime in 2022. We're not exactly sure when. 
all of those privacy moves, right? Even if you think it's disingenuous on the part of Google and, you know, to do that, it will still lead to what I call a shaking out of the ad tech companies that are not adding any value, right? So there's a lot of these middlemen that kind of inserted themselves into the programmatic supply chain to extract as much value as profits for themselves as possible, but not really add much value. I won't get into it too much here, but you know when they talk about all these targeting parameters, like, oh, you can buy 10, 20, 50, 100 targeting parameters to improve the targeting of your ads and therefore the relevance of your ads. What they don't tell the marketers is that some of those targeting parameters are completely wrong. They're just derived. So when you look at some of the data, you know, and, and I've studied this kind of data, not only is some of, some of those uh, audience profiles created by bots, right? They're literally not humans. They're just bot profiles because they're pretending to be certain things. But the other part of the, da- the data is that it's, it might not even be accurate. So some of these audience segments might say this user is both male and female because they literally don't know. And the consumer never told them because the data was collected without their knowledge and without their consent anyway. So if marketers start to realize that the data and the targeting and the audience segments are pretty crappy, right? The data is not clean and there's a lot of bot activity recorded in that. If we actually start going back to more conservative, you know, basic, basic marketing, like putting your ads on a real publisher's site that has real human audiences, you're already going to be doing much better marketing than you are now which to me, I still call it spray and pray because you're still buying billions upon billions of ads. And then you think you're targeting audiences, but the targeting is crappy and the data is crappy. So you're actually not. So in that sense, I'm hopeful that the privacy regulations and some of these uh, moves by the big companies might actually make digital marketing better than it is currently being done. That's a really great insight. And there is a real shift I'm seeing in the industry away from, say, the larger trading desks to going directly to publishers. So, for example, uh, the Washington Post last year, they released a first-party advertising solution, uh, what they call contextual advertising. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah. And there's a real shift away from anonymous third-party tracking and targeting to more as what you say is a spray and pray contextual advertising. It's not specifically targeted to a user identity, but it's going direct to the advertiser instead of going around these trade desks, yeah. uh, which is quite and, an interesting yeah, evolution in advertising. Yeah, and there, there's two key points there. The I've said this before, I've tweeted it out before. The single factor that has the single greatest impact on your marketing effectiveness is showing your ad to humans in the first place, <laughs> right? So that, that seems like, oh, well, why would he even say that? It's because when you're spraying your ad out there on millions of sites in the programmatic long tail, you're not yeah. even sure if your ad got shown to a human, right? So that's, that's one aspect of it. And then the other thing about you know, targeting a particular person, the other thing that I like to say is most advertisers don't need to know who bought the thing. They just need to know that people bought their thing. Right. So a lot of this, like, oh, I don't need to attribute it down to this particular cookie that end up buying the product. I just need to know that when I put advertising into market, that those ads drove more people to buy my stuff. 
right? So a lot of this, you know, targeting down to the individual level or the individual cookie is completely unnecessary, especially for the big brand marketers, right? You don't care who bought that individual bottle of soda. You just need to know that more people went in and bought your soda from the grocery stores. You see what I'm saying? The, the, the difference between targeting down to the level of the individual versus whether marketing worked, whether marketing and advertising worked or not. And that's, that's a real challenge uh, when it comes to attribution. And again, just to touch on some Google's thinking, Avinash, I'm sure you've heard of him. Yep. He talks a lot about attribution, particularly around advertising and you know, multi-touch attribution. And it's a real challenge for CMOs to understand where, where's the revenue coming from? Where's the growth coming from? But to your point, the solution is probably not that really specific targeting you know, who actually bought that, that bottle of soda. It's understanding that channel, that effort actually uh, contributed to the growth of a business holistically. So it's a great concept to have. Augustine Fu. Thank you for such an illuminating conversation. We've covered the state of advertising, marketing in the industry, particularly around ad fraud. We've also covered the four piece, which is an academic framework and how it actually plays out in the real world, on the ground in, with marketing teams. And we've also talked a little bit about influence and about how to engage with public discourse. And so thank you very much for joining me today. I'd love to throw to you for any links or where we can find you online. Okay. Well, I'm always on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash A-C-F-O-U. And uh, most folks can just Google my name, Augustine Fu. So August plus I-N-E and last name is F-O-U on LinkedIn. You know, feel free to follow me and uh, send me any questions. You know, I'm out there in public and happy to answer any challenging questions you can throw at me. And thanks for having me on the show.